years later, one of my brothers, who is only 10 months younger than me, only about, I'd say, 10 years ago, I was talking to my brother. I said, do you remember baby Martin? Now, to think he was four. And he said, oh, I do. And I said, what do you remember? I remember when he died, Helen. Now, he died in a cottage. I said, what do you remember? He said, I remember the white coffin. And he said, Helen, and it was in Joe, who was our neighbour, very good neighbour, God rest him. And he was put into the back of Joe's car. And I, and he said, that was a black Volkswagen. And I remember the black Volkswagen. And he looked at me and he said, do you remember the number of the car? And I said, no. And I've never forgotten my brother. He said, Helen, I was sitting up in the kitchen chair and I looked out after the car. It made me really sad actually listening to him. And he said, I remember the number of that car. It was OIU4268. And he said, Helen, it's imprinted there. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason, and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who are authors, grief professionals, and ordinary people, all with a unique perspective on grief and loss. Loss and the resulting grief can really have such a profound effect on our lives. And it is my intention that these conversations may provide some comfort, hope, and inspiration to you, our listeners. If you find the podcast supportive, please do consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. Even a euro or a dollar per month can help keep us going. For more grief resources and grief supports, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing, this week's episode of Shapes of Grief. This week we're going to be looking at children's grief as it is Children's Grief Awareness Week internationally. So I'm delighted to be joined by Helen Colhan of the Children's Grief Centre in Limerick. Helen, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Liz. I'm delighted to be here. So Helen, of the the 32 episodes that I have covered on grief, only one of them has focused on children's grief. Mm. And that really says a lot because we do call children often the forgotten mourners. Mm. Um, Children are, you know, I say protected in inverted commas, but the protection can actually, you know, what we deem protection can actually do more harm in the long run. So I'm hoping by chatting to you, Helen, that listeners today will be able to dispel some myths that they might have had around children and how they grieve and more importantly how we should be supporting our children when they are going through grief in their life. Mm. Uh, you're 10 years at this Helen so you have a lot of wisdom and expertise um, and experience to share with us which is great. Mm. And in some ways I'm, I'm longer Liz because I had worked as a senior social worker in Milford Hospice in Limerick for nine years prior to setting up this centre and while I was there, I did work with brief children, both in a group and on a one-to-one basis. Great. So, Helen, I suppose let's start with children's grief versus adults' grief. It is very different. 
Um, mm. And it can present quite differently. Would you speak to us a little bit about children's grief and what it might look like? I suppose, Liz, what I've, what I've learned over the years is that, of course, children grieve differently to adults for a number of reasons. And one of the main reasons is because of their stage of development. That's one of the main uh, reasons. So a child of five or ten won't have the same understanding of death as we have as adults. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second aspect then that children, because again of their age and, sta and stage of development, will act out what they're feeling. They actually won't know what they're feeling. They won't be able to verbalise it. But in my experience now, they will either, when I say act out, I mean act out in the good sense, they will either start bedwetting or having nightmares or not wanting to go to school or a lack of concentration in school. Now, there isn't anything wrong with any of what I have said because these actually are normal grief reactions in children. Yeah. So that's really important for people to take into account. And the other uh, aspect I'd like to draw attention to is ch children model their grief on how they're observing their parents grieving. And, you know, I can think of loads of examples where children children would say to me, I would like to talk about my dad. But when I mention him, my mom never stops crying. So they get the message. I can't. Now, when I say this, Liz, I don't want parents feeling that I'm judging them. I'm not. We know, and I think you mentioned it there when we were starting off, parents, and not alone even parents, adults, protect. We have this innate, of course, innate built in, in us to protect children, but we're actually not helping them. I see it over and over again. We think, mm. like, for example, not taking children to funerals. Yeah. And that's Long term, long term, all their lives, that is going to have a huge psychological impact. I know it from like I would have qualified as a psychotherapist, uh, Liz, and a number of years ago, I worked with a lady in her mid 50s. And at this stage of her life, she came for counselling. And I'll always remember over time, we unraveled the onion, as I call it. And what emerged was in childhood, she lost her dad and uh, she wasn't taken to the removal and she wasn't taken to the funeral. And she said to me, she kept all that on the wraps. And then in her mid fifties, she got quite depressed and they were all putting it down to all different reasons. And it was over time. It was, she never had the opportunity to grieve her dad. And here she was now at 55 grieving dad. Yeah, yeah. And Helen, back to something you said there, yes. you said that children will grieve how the their parents model the grief yeah. and you said there that if a child mentions for example if their dad has died and a child mentions dad and then mom starts to cry mm. you said that the child will get the message oh if I talk about dad mom will cry therefore mm. I won't um you know what do you mean by that because I would have always thought if you feel like crying cry in front of your children and tell them it's okay and you know bring them into the grieving process with you to a degree yeah and i i agree but Liz, maybe i didn't explain it clear enough yeah when a child loses a parent to we say bereavement the child's biggest worry and i know this is will my mummy or daddy die now and i'm going to be on my own so many children it's, it's quite normal so that's one aspect so the child feels there there won't be anyone to mind me and i think you see it's the level what my experience, what I'd say to adults is 
Of course, you're going to cry and get upset. But I'm talking about a difference here. It's where a child mentions a dad. We say dad has died and child mentions dad and the mother can't stop crying and is just falling around the place in grief. Now, this is what I'm trying to explain. The child then gets the message, oh, God, I've really upset mom. Whereas I always say to parents, if you can do both with your adult friends or with a counsellor, let all that grief totally out. But small children and even children up to 12 and 13 can get very frightened because they feel now like the carpet has been pulled from them. Dad has died. So who is now going to look after me? Now, mom isn't able to cope. And again, I hope you don't mind giving you this example. I remember a child I worked with and his brother died and he had finished up with me. And after Christmas, he asked to come back. And I, he was 12 and he asked to come back. He said to the mother over Christmas, I want to go back to Helen. So he came back and how we work here is we use a lot of paintings and clay and paint. And he loved painting and he expressed himself through paint. But I can remember him. He painted a picture when he came back. And he had mom in the sitting room and she all blue and uh, colored the painting blue. And when I asked him to tell me about the picture, I said, when you think of blue, what do you think of? And he said, sadness, that blue is sad. And I said, tell me about your picture. And he said, over Christmas, my mom was so sad. She just sat in the sitting room. She talked to no one. And and. We'd say, you could say that's understandable, but this 13 year old kind of felt, oh my God, what's going to happen, my mother? Yeah. She's not going to be able to cope. And the one, um, and even though, like, it was a sibling he had lost, but he was the message. So, what I would feel with parents is that, of course, you're going to cry, but if it's just crying and crying, I hope I'm making sense there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, the key message is it is fine to cry in front of your children and yes. it's important to cry when you're grieving. Um, but it's also important to have adult support rather than do all your grieving in front of your child. So yes. it's something in the middle. So, you know, to show them that you're sad and talk to them about your sadness. Hi, everyone. Excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. But from a place of being supported elsewhere by another adult, from a place where, yes, I'm grieving and I'm still here for you and I'm not going anywhere. I'm still, you know, we'll get through this together and I'm still your mom, still going to make your lunch. I'm still going to be the one who picks you up from school um, to reassure the child in that way. Because, again, I I always the memories I have of another child and her dad died suddenly. And uh, the mom moved out of the family home because it was a heart attack and he died suddenly and she couldn't cope looking at the bedroom. And she moved out and she hadn't planned to move out. This was within the first week or two. But I remember that child in school just was not coping. And when she came to me, now she was about eight. And she, she that eight-year-old talked to me that she had that her father had died. Her home was now gone. She was staying in an uncle's house and uh, sharing a bedroom. Now, this wasn't going to be continuous. 
But I remember when I met with mum, it was mum, it was mum's grief that was now projected. And mum was saying to me, oh, she can't cope in the house. But when I talked to the eight year old, she wanted to be back in her own house. But she was afraid to say that to mum because I'm going to upset mum. Yeah. And how we work, how we work here then, which is really nice. Uh, the child has the option of inviting in the parent at the end. And when her mum came in and looked at all the different stuffs and paintings she did, and the child said, I really miss my own bedroom. And then the penny, um, it dropped with mum. And she went back uh, back to the family home and they did a ritual around the, the, the bedroom. And I remember mum, some maybe a year later, she said, do you know, Helen, she said, I I was unable to make that decision because she said I was in deep grief. And um, even this morning I was giving a talk to a group of professionals and one in the group said that her mother died. And she said, Helen, and even though I'm this professional, she said, I know emotionally I wasn't there for my children because she said my own mother died. And she said I was heartbroken. And she said I wasn't there and she said, that's why it is good that you have groups like Anam Carter, Rainbows, Ourselves, yeah. First Light, uh, all the different, I hope I haven't left out anyone, all the different groups so that when they come to groups like that, the child don't have to be protecting us. Yeah, because children do that instinctively, don't they? They they mm. try to protect the adults around them mm. um, and and may not talk about their own grief or how they're feeling because they don't want to cause any further upset in the home. So as as the adults, it's really up to to us to steer the conversation and make sure there's a healthy amount of, you know, I guess dosing is what we'd call it, talking about grief and then moving on with something else and then talking about our loss and our feelings and then, you know, baking a cake or getting some work done in the house, you know, moving in and out of the grief, we would say would be a, a healthy way to deal with it. Would you agree and, with that? And even, uh, yeah, it's something that I discovered as well, Children uh, have often told me that when they go back to school, that the biggest thing is they want to feel normal yeah. and they want, to be tr- they want to be treated like all the other children. And I'd say, what do you mean? And teachers are wonderful. And so many children would say, oh, I came back and the teacher asked me in front of everyone, how was I? And I was embarrassed and I felt I was different. And how I respond to that, OK, you're the teacher. What would you do now? You're the teacher now. What would you do? Well, Helen, what I would do is um, at break time or play time, I'd go to the child when there's no one around and say, you know, how are you doing? I like the teacher asking me how I'm doing, but I don't like her asking me in front of all my friends. Yeah. Because again, at that stage, uh, they, and over and over, children have told me that they don't want to feel different. They are feeling different. Uh, but that... Uh, School is next to home, is the place where they can be normal and play. And I think you mentioned it there earlier. We all know children are very resilient. They don't grieve like adults. Uh, they will have moments of intense grief. And within five minutes, they're off playing their soccer or their camogie or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think we call that puddle grief, isn't yeah, that the term? Yeah, that's, that's a lovely, yeah. Uh, 
where the, where they have that intense grief and then they are able to bounce out of it whereas yeah. with adults it's more like chronic grief it's just yeah. there all the time it's interesting you bring up about schools Helen um, I'm literally just off the phone with the school uh, where there's a bereaved child and offering them some suggestions for how to support the child and I think you know, we have to take such a broad look on how to support children in grief because, you know, the school might be the only place where they're able to be normal. But for a child who's living in a sort of a rural part of Ireland mm-hmm. or not in a community, the school might be the only place where they're getting support as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this particular school said to me, we're not asking her how she's doing because we don't want to hassle her or make her upset. You know, and I I said, well, she's upset already in every cell of her body. You know, she's had a major bereavement and what you're doing is lancing a boil by offering her space to 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 speak about her grief. You know, so we identified the people that this young person would be comfortable speaking with and we've put a little plan in place. And the key message I gave to the school was this is the long haul. You know, this isn't just for the next couple of weeks. We need this for the next couple of years. Because as many people know, often year one for children and adults is just the shock of it and the trauma and coping with the death. But often year two can then be the intense grief of Mm -hmm. they're not coming back, you know. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, that when we want to support people in grief, we're in it for the long run. Yeah. And, you know, you remind me again of so many children that I worked with. And I remember working with a 10 year old and her mom died when she was one. Yes. And uh, she was now 10 and she was in school. And the teacher said, uh, tomorrow is Mother's Day and we're going to do a card. And the teacher, wonderful woman, feeling very sensitive, went around and when she came to we called her my little lady she said you don't have to do one now and um so mm. this child told me now the teacher in her heart and i suppose this is what's wonderful about these podcasts because it's kind of the myths that are out there i will upset the child she was more upset not to be included so she told yeah. me the child told me she said helen i was so upset because i have a I have a mother she is dead, but I have a mother. And she said, and I said, and what happened then? And she said, I felt so angry. And Helen, and I was walking home and I, I just felt so angry. I'll never forget what she said. She said, I got my school bag and I threw it in over the ditch, totally unlike this child. And she went home and her, like, her dad could see she was very upset. And then eventually she came in here to me and I can, she taught me an awful lot. She was now at this stage of development. She was realizing what it was kind of to miss a mom, uh, how every Mother's Day reminded her that her mom was dead. And so she said, and I said, would you have any photographs of your mom? And she said, I'll bring them in the next day. So she arrived in real proudly and she had this photograph of her dad. And he was the following day standing over her mom's um, um, in the graveyard over her mom's grave and she was up there on her dad's shoulder and so I said tell me about the photograph and I'll never forget she felt she looked really proud and she said Helen that was the day after my mom's funeral you can see my mom was very popular you see all the flowers and I said I do yeah I do and then she looked at me and she said and you see Helen 
I was there. I just found that comment, even though she was only one. Okay, the dad told me she, they didn't bring her to the funeral. She was so young, but he he brought her the next day, and he and somewhere yeah. he asked someone he asked someone to take that photograph, and uh, that meant so much. But what we had to do then, we together with dad and uh, ourselves, she wanted to know about her mom and how we work here. Then we do what we call we don't do. We show people how to do uh, a memory book. So I got dad to list all the people that was in mom's life. Her parents were still alive, uh, sisters, brothers, people who worked with her. And then dad himself wrote about when they met, where they met, when they got married. And then one of them typed up this beautiful, beautiful memory book. And I just find the memory books. I might be going off a bit trapped now. But to see her face when this was completed and the questions and like and when people wrote, I'm, I'm making up the name. I met Mary when we were in first class. I remember her well. She had long blonde hair. She was very good at camogie. And this child of 10 now was looking in awe and delight. All the questions as they get older. And as yeah. you said, it doesn't go away. But And that's why early intervention with grieving children is so important. If you can stop that conversation early, yeah. then they're not as traumatized. That's my experience, Liz. They need, yeah, it's so true. And this is so important for anyone listening, you know, where that child, people think you are two, you won't remember, it doesn't matter. But that child will look for memories. I had um, Siobhan Overson on the podcast a few weeks ago. Siobhan is 65 now, I think, but when she was two years old, both her parents and a sibling die and an aunt died in a, a drowning tragedy in Carlingford Lock. But Siobhan talks about going back to the house where she lived with her parents when they died, scouring for memories, desperate to get some memories, you know. And this is something that we can do for children is give them memories, give them photographs, you know. I'm I'm just thinking a friend of mine died eight years ago and her children, they were four and two at the time. And I was tasked with um, giving all my friends clothes away to charity. Her mother asked me to give them away. But I kept um, some leather jackets and boots and I have them up in my attic, you know, and, and their dad knows I have them. And it's for those teens, you know, when she guts to the stage they live in another country now but when it she gets to the stage where she's coming back looking for information and looking for memories of her mother i have stuff you know ready to go and you um, see i think that's so important and i learned that when i worked in the hospice people immediately after the funeral clearing out wardrobes it is a, i think it's an extremely important point we'd say my advice would be you don't touch anything like, for at least I'm going to be my experience at least two years because wow. I, I always remember a teenage boy and he's like when his dad died and his mom was so wise and she didn't move anything out of we said dad's wardrobe and she, after a few months she said to her son you go in and have a look at dad's clothes and take what you want to take and I remember him telling me clearly he said I I have a number of my dad's um, T-shirts, Helen, and he loved T-shirts. And he said something that was so profound. 
And he said, I love wearing them, Helen, because I get the smell of my dad. Yeah. And he was yeah. 17. He said, I love wearing them. So like he was able to select. Uh, he didn't want everything, but he wanted and he took jumpers and all different things and some of dad's jewellery. And again, the importance of we say that's all a link, we say to smell. And you, you're just talking there. And on a personal note, I was five and a half when my brother died. On the 14th of September, I mentioned the 14th of September. Yes. And um, I now when I started the centre, I didn't know my brother had died on that date. It was only later on when I got his death cert. But uh, so you started the Children's Grief Centre in Limerick on the 14th of September 2009, your brother's yeah. anniversary. And I didn't realise that yeah. until I went training to be a therapist and looking at looking at my own issues. And my therapist asked me, and when did your brother die? And I said, oh, I don't know. And then I went and got his birth cert and his death cert. And I could not. Be, I thought, I don't know what has happened to think. But going back, I in those days, there was no mass for children. And I have a very even I'm now 62 and I have a very clear memory. I can still see it in my mind's eye. I can see our kitchen. I can see all the neighbours around the kitchen. I see my little brother's uh, white coffin. And then the next memory that has stayed with me, I see the coffin being placed in a neighbour's car. We didn't have a car. We lived mm. out of the country. And the neighbour, and I can see the coffin being placed. And then I can. we lived on a farm and there was a passage and I can see the car driving off. We were not taken. It was the men. I remember my dad and uncles. And and in fairness to my parents, they spoke about him like it wasn't that he was spoken about. But years later, one of my brothers, who is only 10 months younger than me, only about, I'd say, 10 years ago, I was talking to my brother. I said, do you remember baby Martin? Now, to think he was four. And he said, oh, I do. And I said, what do you remember? I remember when he died, Helen. And now he died in a cottage. And I said, so I didn't tell him what I remembered. I said, what do you remember? He said, I remember the white coffin. And he said, Helen, and it was in Joe, who was our neighbour, very good neighbour, God rest him. And he was put into the back of Joe's car. And, I, and he said, that was a black Volkswagen. And I remember the black Volkswagen. Wow. And, and then he said, and I said, oh, Pat, I remember that. And he looked at me and he said, do you remember the number of the car? And I said, no. And I have never forgotten my brother. He said, Helen, I was sitting up in the kitchen chair and I looked out after the car. It made me really sad actually listening to him. And he said, I remember the number of that car. And he went like this. It was OIU4268. And he said, Helen, it's imprinted there. <sighs> and we say when people talk, you know, would say to me, oh, no, they're too small and they don't realize. And that's a personal experience. And I can remember then the other learning for me personally was so that was I was five. And when I was 10 years old, I was looking at it was called Seven Days and it was like prime time now. And I was looking at it and it was all about thalidomide, but I didn't know it was thalidomide. It was all about little babies with short limbs. And I was looking at it with my mother, but my mother didn't say anything during the program. And I was going to my mother. Oh, look, ma'am, do you see? Oh, look at the little baby. So when the program was over, she said to me, oh, Helen, can I see you? Can we have a little chat? I thought a little chat would be chatting about now. It was nighttime. 
And she sat me down and she explained what thalidomide was. She ex and I'll always remember, I can still, I felt so like now, now. And she said, Helen, it wasn't my fault. And uh, she talked in when he was born and they sent in the parish priest to tell her. And uh, then she explained about the cot that how they, she had the knock on the door and at four o'clock in the morning and she said to my father, get up, there's someone at the door. And he said, oh, woman, go back to sleep. It's four o'clock. And he got out of bed and he went to the front door. There was no one there. And getting back into the bed, the baby was dying. Now, my mother's faith was that an angel woke him up. And uh, so she was telling me that. And she told me that. And so I go to school next day and I have a clear memory of this. And I'm washing my hands at the sink after being to the bathroom. And this girl, who was a year younger than me, and her parents were very friendly with my grandmother. And I was washing my hands and she turned to me and she said, Helen, my mother told me you had one of those children, one of those babies that was on television last night. I can remember it to this day. And I just looked at her, Liz, and I said, I know. And her face dropped and I walked off and I can remember feeling six foot tall. And that's mm -hmm. why I, I think it's so important to be honest with children, because I've often reflected on that little story. And if my mom hadn't told me the truth, what would I have felt standing there? What has gone on? So yeah. I always say to parents, you tell the truth age appropriately, whatever the bereavement has been. Because what I feel if parents don't do it, they're going to hear it as I did at school. I hear they'll hear it at yeah. school and you'll have some smarty pants that will want to bring the child down. And I can still remember walking away and saying, yes, I know that. Yeah. And yeah. thank God you did. And you'd only known it for for 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah. The, the damage that could have been done had exactly. your mom not told you the night before. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, it's so important. And I think essentially what we're talking about here, Helen, is um, memories, creating a narrative and for, forging continuous bonds. For the children, like yeah. like for us, that's what's so important. We, you know, when someone we love dies, we don't want their memory to die. Yeah. So we try and keep them, keep their memory alive in our lives with photographs, with stories about them. And a child wants to do that also, but maybe doesn't have the years of, you know, of contact of memories with their, their loved one. So we need to help them by giving them yeah. memories, telling the stories, showing them photographs. And certainly memory box is something that I would work with yeah, a lot yeah. when I have a, a brief thought, is to create a memory box together to help them find a different relationship to their loved one who has died. And for children, sometimes it's building a relationship almost scratch with their loved one who has died, you know, and, that void in their life. And, you know, a little exercise that I've done over the years and I find it really works. It's it's simple. I say to the, I put out my fist like this and I'd say, this is my fist. And I know this is the size of my heart because the doctor told me one time that your heart is the size of your fist. Now, I'm sure he was telling me the truth. And then I say to the child, just for a moment, put out your hand there and just your fist. And, I, and that's the size of your heart, I say to the child. And then I'd say, that might look very small, but our hearts actually are very big and we can keep loads of memories in our hearts and um it, 
children, it, it came up with my own, it was something over the years, and children really, and they will say to me afterwards, yeah, I now know I can carry my mum or my dad or my in my heart. And it's that continuing bond as well that I can always carry them and no one can take that. Yeah. And I, and I think it's important to say that that's somewhere we want to get to. Yeah. Um, but there's a process, a grieving process yeah. that, that has to be gone through. You know, before that, I would often have calls from parents who say, my child is acting out, as you said, you know, not sleeping at night, having nightmares, hitting me, screaming, having mm-hmm. tantrums. It's part and parcel of it. It's how they often express their grief. And we can't fix it. Sometimes we need yeah. to just support it or give them alternative ways of communicating if that's possible. And but grief is really messy and hard. And, and uh, there's actually, we have a workbook called Grief is Messy. I don't know whether you've got oh, it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And that's the title of it. We, we got it online. Yeah. Uh, I don't know now if I could share this with you. I remember a mum coming to me and her husband died suddenly when their only child was three. And all the advice she got from everyone around her, oh, no, don't take him to the funeral, don't take him to the removal. So he was three. Two years later, in school, out of the blue, he started kicking the wall and said to his teacher, I want to see a dead person. I want to see a dead person. Yeah. Teacher thought, what's going on? And called mum. And mum brings the child to the GP. And the GP was a very wise man. And he said, I think this is to do with his grieving. And uh, gave my name at the time. So this five-year-old came in. So the mum came in first and told me. And then I'll never forget the first session with this five-year-old. Like children has taught, like I've no children, but children have taught me so much. So he noticed in the room that there was markers and paint and cranes. And within a few minutes of coming into the room, he said, can I paint a picture? And I said, of course you can. He painted, he drew a house, he drew a truck and he drew a, a woman. And I'm just there. And then he said, I'm finished. Now, five. And I said, wow, tell me about your picture. Helen, we used to live in this house, but we don't live there anymore. My dad used to drive that truck, but he's not there. He's up there. And he kind of pointed up. And you see that woman there. She had the same name as you. She was my childminder. She was called Helen. And she don't mind me anymore. And I remember, so mum comes in to the end of the session and he says all of this and she was shocked and she said, well, Helen, I forgot to mention to you because my dad, my husband died suddenly at home and I couldn't bear looking out on the grass that he, and she said, I foolishly, I realise now, she said, I quickly within six months sold the family home because I thought if I was looking out, I couldn't cope. And she said, I realise now I shouldn't have done it. But she said, as I look at that painting, I realise that my son lost his home, his memories of his dad. Uh, He's right. That's what dad did. And his childminder. And I just very gently said, mom, and make up the child's name. I'm making up his name now. Was Kevin at the removal? And she said, oh, no, no. And I said, was he at the funeral? And she said, oh, no, no. And she said, but Helen, I bring him every Sunday and we visit the grave but 
you'll know and I'll know, to that little child, because he was in part of the whole process, yeah. Like he had sat down at supper and had his supper with his dad, and next thing dad went out to mow the lawn and dad died suddenly and he never saw his dad. So because and if I could really stress this for parents, children need to be able to say goodbye to their loved ones. Because he never got that opportunity. And then he wasn't at the, any part of the we say at the ritual the next day. So what what I had to do with mom's help. Uh, what I had to do then with mum's help, I said, mum, you have to help me. So in the next session, mum sat in with me and we explained to her little five-year-old what a heart attack was, that what happened to dad. We had to talk about the removal, talk about the funeral. Yes. Because what I was explaining to mum, and she in her heart thought she was doing the right things, but because he was not at the funeral, looking at this piece of grass meant nothing to him. Yeah. And I remember that mother, most people don't phone you up and I don't expect this, but she phoned me up about a year later and she said, Helen, I just need to thank you. She said, my goodness, she said, it has been such a learning. And she said, you know, everyone advised me, oh, he was too young, this, that. And I was saying to her, we're not here to judge anyone. People think they're doing the right thing. But yeah. I said, for, for the child's long-term psychological development, they need to be involved in and given a choice. And um, because I know from working with very young children, when they come to me when they're older, for them to be able to say, I was there, I was there, I was, it's it's very, very important. And we can we can now yeah. understand you talking about it. But yeah. It's part of the memories, but I think it's also more than that. It's an embodied acceptance yeah. that the person they love has died because otherwise it's just information that's in the head, in the mind. Mm -hmm. But when you can use your senses to see the dead person, to hear people crying, to maybe even touch them, you know, yeah. obviously depending, you're not going to force a child to do anything no. that they don't want to do. But a lot of children will be quite open when they can feel it. And I suppose at this stage of my life now, Liz, and I feel children, that's a right that they have. Now, that might sound very strong, but it's a right that they have, you know. And, you know, again, as we're talking, it just I see children flashing in front of me. And I remember an eight-year-old and his granddad had died two years previously. He wasn't taken to the removal. He was taken to the church next day, but he saw a box. He met nudging him and he started having problems two years later, which I have discovered if they're not involved, it will emerge to, I, I, I'd love to do a piece of research, but I've seen it too. But he came in to me in the first session eight and after mum went out to the waiting room and I said, tell me about your granddad. And he started to tell me about his granddad. And I said, and do you remember the funeral? And he said, I was in that removal. And I said, mm, was there a reason for that? I have never forgotten him. He looked at me and he said, Helen, I had an older brother and I was six and my brother was eight and my mum and dad came into the sitting room and they went over to my big brother and we make up his name and said, Harry, would you like to go to granddad's removal? And he said, no. Helen, they never asked me. They ran out the door and didn't even look back. Oh. And, and I remember when the mum came into the, into the session and he was showing her his workbook and he said this, and the mum looked at me and she said, yeah, Helen, that's exactly what happened. And she said, 
we didn't know what to do and we thought it was the right thing. And I just said, I said, Mom, you know, please don't think I'm not here judging you. We're not about that. But our window were finishing up, she said, Helen, I learned so much. And that's exactly what happened. She said, we we thought, oh no, he's six and he's too young. And 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 I said, I remember saying to him, What was it like? What was it like when your mom and dad, as you quoted, ran out the door and didn't even look back? And he said to me, uh, Helen, I was so angry because he said, I saw my grandfather every day. And Helen, no one told me that he had had cancer. And he said, I knew something was wrong, Helen, because granddad was all green in the face. And it's all yeah. these, like, they're big things. And um, and I suppose it's getting that education out that um, children do grieve and that they need the opportunity to be able to say their goodbyes. And you've said, Liz, these are memories that we live, as I have, you've seen there from when Helen was five. These are memories that we live on forever. Yeah. They don't go. They don't go. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's from a good place. We think we're protecting them or we think they're too young to be burdened with illness or burdened with dying. But the, the inevitable is going to happen and those children are missing out on an opportunity to create memories. You know, I would have heard from some young people that I would support. Um, I wish I'd known sooner because oh, I, I would have spent her birthday with her in the hospital okay. and I wouldn't have gone out with my friends so much. And I know that they were trying to protect us, but I've so many regrets of that okay. time yeah. because I didn't know she was dying. Yeah. You know, did you? I don't know. Have you heard of Daniel McConnell? No, I haven't. Who's Daniel McConnell? I, Daniel McConnell is a journalist with the Irish Examiner, a political journalist. And I was interviewed a number of years ago by Sean O'Rourke. And I just talked about the work. And a few days later, a friend of mine phoned me up from Cork and she said, there's an article in the Irish Examiner now. Everyone should read it by Daniel McConnell, who I had never met. And the heading was, every child has a right to be heard. And next thing, I I went out to buy the newspaper. And here was this wonderful article by Daniel McConnell stating, I heard um, Helen Colhane on with Sean O'Rourke and he said it brought back so many memories. And he talked about when he in the article and if anyone reads it and it's worth a read, he talked about when he was 12, his mum was discharged from hospital a few days before Christmas Day. And he was the youngest of six. And he asked mum, could he go somewhere the next day? And she said no. And they had a row. All of this is in the article. And um, they had a row. And the next day she died. And in his article, he was he explains that he was never told that his mum had cancer. But he talks very openly, very wonderful. It's a wonderful, wonderful article. How he carried that guilt in. And we had a conference this year celebrating 10 years. And he was one of, with two speakers, and he was one of them. Oh, my goodness. And someone was saying to me, you're bringing a journalist to talk about grief. If I could have bottled what he said, he was absolutely. And he talks there should be kind of a children's grief centre in every county in Ireland. And he's a young man married with three children. But to, And you'll get that article on um, online. And he says it much better than I'm saying it. And 
you know. And, and I think something you're saying here, Helen, is so key because I, I even just had a Twitter chat with somebody in the last couple of days whose father had died a couple of decades ago mm-hmm. and she's now making a memory box, you yeah. know, as a she's an adult, not even a young adult in her 30s. It's never too late. It's never yeah. too late to go back and take care of that grieving child who was ignored and dismissed 20 years ago or 30 years ago. You know, it's not too late to create the memories or the memories memory album or make a memory book or um, even have a ritual if you weren't allowed, if you weren't brought to the funeral, if you weren't allowed to be there, what could you do now? Yeah. I've, I, know, um, I know of two sisters, two friends, and um, their parents died when they were, they, were, they were teenagers and they were not there. They weren't with their parents as they died. And their grief has been chronic, you know, I would say complicated grief or prolonged grief, if you like. It has endured over the years with them. And recently, one of their parents' siblings that they were quite close to died and they had a chance to be there and be with her as she passed away. And they both expressed such a sense of healing mm. at being able to be at a death. There was something in going through the dying process with another loved one that healed a little bit of Mm -hmm. what they had missed when they were younger. So it is important that if anyone feels it was so long ago, you know, it's never too late. I know, and even and Liz, even the simple things. I was out for a walk there some weeks ago, and this young man was smiling at me as I was walking towards him, and I was thinking, God, do I know him? And next thing he stopped me and he said, "Aren't you Helen?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said. And uh, you work with grief. And he said, do you remember me? He said, I, I, I came, like, I'd say, about 10 years ago. And he said his name. So, like, he was about maybe 17 when he came to me. And he's now, we say, 27, 30. And I said, so I was really curious. And I said, what do you remember? And he said, I still have the memory box. And Helen, it's under my bed. And I get it out once a year. And he said, I go, and he was his mum. And uh, he said, I go through that memory box. And as I walked away, I I reflected about it and thought about it. Something that might appear simple. And I thought, he has held on to this for, and and he told me, he said, I will never get rid of it. And it's, and I said, what does it do when you look at it? And he said, well, you remember, Helen, you encouraged me to bring pictures. And I brought in my mum's perfume and and I remember he brought in her driving license and her passport. And he said, and what you're saying, Liz, he said, Helen, he brought back the memories. And he said, uh, that box, he said, and I have, you know, moved house twice. And he said, since I have seen you, I'm now in a, I won't be moving again. He said, hopefully. But he said, that's under my bed. Yeah. yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. Gorgeous. Helen, I'd love to talk to you about, um, grief and separation or divorce Mm -hmm. because this is I know Rainbows Ireland also support children whose parents have separated or divorced as well as children who are bereaved and so do you is that right in the Children's Grief Centre what would be the key differences that you would see between the grief of separation and divorce versus the grief of bereavement because I think the grief of separation and divorce for children is so much more disenfranchised Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm gosh, I'm not comparing it now. There's there isn't a comparison. There's no hierarchy, but when somebody dies, there's a funeral, there's a ritual, it's acknowledged, dinners are brought over, um, you know, people support the family and when there's a separation, that doesn't happen. There isn't a ritual. 
The children find out maybe in drips and drabs. Mm. You know, people don't really address it with them or speak to them about it. I know this because I'm separated and I see it in my own kids. You know, it's, it's four years now since we went through it, but they are still grieving. Mm. They grieve every day, even though they've got through the event of separation, they miss their dad every mm. single day mm. and they grieve him every single day. Um, would you speak a little bit about children's grief yeah. as a result of separation or divorce? And it is very different. It is very different. And what I've learned from listening to adults, like we insist that we meet both parents. And so some, sometimes the parents will come in together, other times they're not able. We always say to parents, we're not here to judge you. Our main focus is the children and young people. What I've learned from listening to the children and young people where mum and dad have separated or divorced, and 50% of the children who attend our service are children where parents have separated and divorced. And again, I've learned so much from them. They, most of them would have said to me, it wasn't the end of the world that my mum and dad separated. What they find most difficult, and this... Uh, I had a 17 year old and he said to me, he said, my mum and dad separated when I was three and I na- I'm now 17. And he said to me, do you know what it's like when parents separate? And I said, no. But I said, would you tell me? And he went like this, Liz. He said, look at me. And he went, he said, I have been. And he got his finger up to his forehead. He said, I have been a P-A-W-N, pawn. Wow. I said, can you tell me what a pawn is? Yes, Helen, I will tell you. I've been a pawn for the last 14 years. I'm sick of it. I can take no more of it. My parents use me. I go to mom and say, I need this. She says, go to dad. I go to dad. You go to your mom. What they find the most difficult, and this is what they tell me. A lot of children will say, it's great, Helen. The fighting has stopped. But uh, we actually brought out a leaflet about being caught in the middle. It's called caught in the middle for parents who are separating. What children will say, Helen, the snide remarks, you know, one parent talking about the other parent, getting details that they don't need to get, that they're too young. A lot of older teenagers would say that. My mom told me that dad went off and had an affair uh, with his secretary. I didn't really need to know all the details of telling the children about going to court. And that's what they find it most difficult. And, you know, there was some... So what I would really be, I suppose, I call pleading with parents. Like what I've noticed, and okay, I've never been married, but I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of children whose mums and dads have separated. What the children find the greatest agony, they have to listen to granny giving out about mother or to, yeah. to auntie something giving out. And so many young people have said to me, Helen, this is my mother that I've given out about. And I, I'll share a story. I, I love. I should have been a storyteller. But many, many years ago, I worked with a seven-year-old and she was an only child and her mum had uh, an affair and the relationship split up. And she came to me when she was seven. And we had a number of sessions and she's now 13. And so she came seven for maybe five sessions. That was it, did really well. But she looked to come back when she was 13. And I was really curious coming back at 13. And she, yeah. sat, and she sat in front of me and she said, Helen, I wanted to come back because you helped me a little when I was seven. But I'm older now and I don't think I fully dealt with it. And I said, mm-hmm. and I said, and you've come back now because when you see Helen, um, you know, my mom and dad are separate all these years. And every day after school, I go to granny, which is dad's mom. And you know my dad's an only child. And I love my granny, Helen, but 
I've, I've come here to talk to you today because I'm trying to make a decision whether I will continue going to Granny. And I said, mm-hmm, and is there a reason? You see, Helen, ever since my mum and dad separated, my granny has never stopped talking and passing smart comments about my mother. And you see, Helen, I'm sick of it. And I really don't want to be listening to it. Yeah. And it mm. worked out really well in the end. Her dad brought it to every session. And so after a number of sessions, dad, she invited dad in and she said this to her dad. And I'll never forget dad. He kind of said, oh, um, cut out that nonsense. And then I said, look, dad, please listen to her. But what was wonderful, dad went to his mother, granny, and he came back to the next session. And at the end of it, he said to the daughter, he said, I spoke to my mother, to granny. And she did. She agreed that she was always given out about your mother. And she feels very sorry about it. And she didn't realize he was impacting so much. So she's promised me it will never happen again. And that's what I, I find is, and um, children feel very insecure and they, they keep saying to me, we'll have no house to live in. We have to keep the children in the center of it. They love yeah. both parents. They want a relationship with both parents. And they, I keep saying, I'll write a story. They don't want to be caught in the middle. And going back, you said something earlier on. I have a vivid remember, memory, and this is about eight years ago, and I learned a lot from this young teenager. She was 16, and she was an only child. And she came in, and she had a bullet point. Bullet points written out. This had never happened since. And she explained to me, Liz, she said, Helen, my mom and dad separated when I was four. I live with my mom. I go to my dad every second weekend. I have a relationship with both parents. But she said, I was on, um, uh, on a placement because I'm hoping to go on and study medicine. And I was on a placement in fifth year. And it happened, a psychiatrist, she said, talked about parental separation. And you know what happened, Helen? I started getting all flashbacks. And I said, what kind of flashbacks did you get? And she said, oh, memories of dad telling me about things mum said and mum telling me about the courts. And And she said something that's going to link to what something you said previously. And she said, you see, Helen, I got here she was now she was if I got a video at her she said you see Helen everything my mom said about dad is and she went like this in here and then she said everything dad said about mom is it and everything mom said about dad and I said to her what is and she said Helen it is all stored in my body and I have cried every night since I'm seven what her parents said, what her parents said to me, they were totally unaware. They were totally unaware. They thought she was doing really well, doing really well in school. Yeah. But the whole learning, and I think you said it, all the anger that she had to cope with was stored in her body. And we know Beth, Beth Rothschild, that social worker. And That's Trump, right. Uh, she or Bessel van der Kock, the, bo- the body keeps the score. What? Just we say to maybe that might sound very negative, but on a positive note, when she she came for about six or seven sessions, we met with the parents. The parents were absolutely distraught. They had no idea what they had no idea. And and I I remember when she finished up with me and they do an evaluation sheet, what was the most helpful? uh, She wrote, this is all I ever wanted my whole life that my mom and dad would have an amicable relationship with each other. 
She wasn't looking for him to get back together again. She And she said to me, I wouldn't want that. But she said, she said, Helen, I love my dad. I love my mom. I just want them to respect each other. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what you're saying there, Helen, like whether it's divorce or bereavement, the child will get over the event. You know, obviously it's devastating if a father dies or a mother dies or a sibling dies. It's devastating if their parents separate or get divorced. But it's something that can be managed and supported. And the real suffering comes when it's not managed or supported. Oh, yeah. You know, or where where additional trauma, such as parents being very acrimonious with each other, um, comes into the situation. Do you know what I say to couples? And I've learned just learned this again from experience. I'd say, look, mum, 20 years time, you'll still be the ex-wife. And I look at their husband and I say, 20 years time, you'll be the ex-husband. And then I come back and I go, mom, 20 years time, you will still be the mother and always will be. And I said, dad, and you'll always be the father. And I feel if that can be kept the focus and then rather than the anger eaten, eaten up the two parents, but and then having a huge impact on the children. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're going to see so much more of it in Ireland. Divorce in in America, I think, is 55 percent of marriages end in divorce. Yeah. And in Ireland, it's currently about nine percent and on the rise. I would also support a lot of people going through a separation in my private practice. And there's so many people who say I shouldn't have married her. Or I shouldn't have married him. And what's happening is there, you know, society is telling them it's time. Mm -hmm. We put so much pressure on young people to fall into some pattern of social acceptance. And I think we should stop doing that because what's happening is people are making mistakes and nobody is the better for that. Mm. You know, nobody is the better for that. But like I say, that's that's really a different conversation. Well, look, Helen, a couple of practical things I'd love to, I mean, there's so much we could talk about here. We've spoken about, you know, we've spoken about the myth of protecting children from grief, Mm -hmm. you know, age appropriate confrontation and giving them the right to grieve. Like you said, we've spoken about how schools, you know, how it can be very important for schools either to allow normality or to be the ones supporting if that isn't happening somewhere else. We've talked about the longevity needed with grief it's not something that you just get over in a couple of weeks or months following a bereavement you know if a child's parent dies they're still dead two years later and they still don't have a parent two years later so while the acute grief might have passed there is still so much grief there so the longevity of support is so important puddle grief Mm. how a child will often you know have an outburst of grief and then just get on with it how children will protect their parents and I think something you said earlier, which is so true, when a child hears my mum's going to, they often won't feel, oh, that's so sad, mum's going to die. The initial response often will be, well, who's going to make my lunch and put me to bed and buy my clothes? Yeah. Yeah. And who's going to bring me to school? So a child needs reassurance, like, I'm going to be here for you and I'll bring you to school and I'll take care of you. They need those blanks filled in. Is there anything else, Helen, that you'd like to add to that? Any practical support or practical tips that you could give to some 
but he is supporting a bereaved child at the moment. As just something comes to mind. An awful lot of children, regardless of age, will say to me, I'm worried that my mom or dad will die too. Yes. And, and I have I learned it from my years working in the hospice. And usually people will say, Oh no, don't be foolish. Of course your mum won't die. And so many children have said to me, But Helen, my dad died suddenly. So I have learned how I've learned and it works. And even presently I'm working with a little she's about eight and her granny died. And she's been very anxious and she's not sleeping. And when she came in for her session, her big worry is that her mum and dad are going to die. Now, I can't sit in front of her and say your mum and dad aren't going to die. But what I've learned, and it works, so I, oh, you're worried your mum and dad are going to die. Now, can I ask you this question? And if something, God forbid, happened to your mum or dad, who would you like to mind you? Now, parents actually, Liz, find this very difficult. Children, I'll give you an example, a 13-year-old and his dad died suddenly. And his big issue was, Helen, I'm the eldest and if mum dies. And he looked at me and he said, don't tell me she won't die. So I said to him, no, I won't. So I said, I'm going to ask you to pause for a moment. And I said, I want you to think about who would you like to mind you? So this 13-year-old within a second, Helen, actually, who I'd like to mind if anything happened, mum, would be my granny. What age is your granny? 66. This happened now. He was one of the first children I saw 10 years ago. Uh, 66. I said, I'm really curious. Why have you selected granny? Helen, she had 12 children and she has great experience. I'll always remember him. So I said, OK, we put down granny number one. Will we put a second one just because of age? I said to him, he said, yeah, granny number one, number two. And he said, and Uncle Johnny or something. And he had children. The other part that how it works more is... It's wanting to say that and it's lovely. So mom of that 13 year old came into this into the session and he said this to mom. Mom, I've been really worried about this eventing happens to you. And mom was very good. She didn't go, oh my God, you're talking nonsense. She said, no, I, I, I understand. Dad was perfect and he died suddenly. And he said, I said to Helen that I'd like granny and she, she couldn't stop laughing. Your granny, I can't believe it. And Edward, his granny and uncle John, then number two. The next part, what I'm going to say, is very important. It's it's not it's oh, that's the first leg. The second leg of the journey is to uh, go to your solicitor and make it legal. I've seen when that happens, you can see the children, the anxiety leaves because there is that security, and you've said it. They now know if something happens, I'll have someone that look after me, buy me clothes, give me something to eat, yes. and I've seen it over and over. Very simple, but you ask them. And uh, I suppose it's easier for a stranger to ask. They don't have to be protecting me in that. But what I have learned from it, children have no problem. And they'll say, oh, no, I love Auntie Mary, Helen. She's always, and she's my godmother. And she always remembers my birthday. And I get on well with my first cousins. And they always, they always know who they want. And I have done that, I'd say, hundreds of times now. And I have to look back and say, none of the parents die. But the anxiety was lifted from the children. Yeah. So years, this death anxiety that can happen when there's a sudden death or any kind of a death in the family yeah. is to go into the worst case scenario, to go into the anxiety, explore it, yeah. unpack it. Yeah. You know, and that's so much more reassuring to a child rather than don't be ridiculous. Someone's died. No one else is going to die, you know, which is something, like you said, we can't guarantee any child. And children have yeah. told me they know that they know you like they know that. Say, oh, no. Um, don't tell me that my um, uncle won't die. Don't tell me my mother won't die. 
And I always say, no, I wouldn't do that. I'd say, usually we know most people don't lie until they're old, but we know other cases. And the child will say, yeah, look at my dad. He was yeah. there and then he died on Monday. Yeah, yeah. So important. So truth, age-appropriate truth all the way. What are you doing for Children's Grief Awareness Week? Are you doing anything there in Limerick? Well, Liz, we, I suppose we've had an awful, extremely busy week and, well, busy months because we're looking at building a new children's grief centre and we have a huge amount of just different fundraising things on. Um, so what a lovely video came out last year. Last year, we won the National Lottery Good Causes Award for our work. Fantastic. And they did a brilliant video and there's actually two children and two parents uh, were videoed and um, that's really worth a look at. So if you put in the national, so we've put that up on our, we have that put up on our website for people that, to have right. a look at it. So if you, if you go into YouTube, National Lottery Good Causes Award. I'll find it and I'll link yeah. to it in the podcast description. Yeah. So uh, last year, because this year it was a crazy year for us, last year we did a competition in the schools. And my fundraiser did a competition in the schools and, oh, we got a huge response. And we had a, a, an artist that uh, did, a, she judged them. And so we have kept some of them here. The, the winners, oh, it was most profound what they wrote around grief and loss. And one in particular, a little boy whose brother died and he wrote this most beautiful poem. This little boy was five when his brother died. So he's been coming into me off and on. And so we had the competition in the schools and we'll, we decided we'll do it every two years. And so his brother was called David and this little boy now is only about eight. And this is what he wrote. I'll always remember my brother the best. I'll always remember he called me the best. We loved each other and together we would play. Life was a breeze until one sad day. My brother left me forever. The world told me give up, but I said never. Now, every day I go outside and play, I'll always remember each happy day to David, my brother, love John. Yeah, isn't that, I think, you know, maybe that sums up all we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's and so I, profound for them. Yeah, and to think he, like, he wrote that... A lot of time I find these people think I make up these stuff to be emotional. He wrote that and, uh, you know, he's doing really well and he's wonderful parents supporting him through his uh, through his grief and through their grief as well. And maybe I, I found I was just looking there before you came. I was looking at a piece of work I did with a child when he was eight following his dad's death. And when he finished up, he said what he found most helpful was I I'm able to get the words out. That's what he found most helpful in coming to the Children's Grief Centre. Yeah. I'm able to get the words out. Finding a way to express himself. Yeah. So I suppose our message today, Helen, to listeners is take care of our grieving children, mm. whatever their loss. Children grieve very much, very real, very profound. And it's very painful when their grief is ignored. And I'll also link to um, the Irish Childhood Bereavement Network, yeah, yeah. which has a wonderful website with lots of resources for people who are supporting bereaved children. Yeah. 
Helen, thank you so much. Not at all. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You're not alone. Once again, please do consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, and we rely on your support to keep us going. The music was written by Silly Wizard and performed by Sue Hart and Martin Craddock, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well and take very good care. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing, dust grey hung like jewels in her hair. Mid the rock, the rock of that desolate landing, oh, as though there were none, she stood there. Their eyes.